0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host Chris, and today my guest is Robert Talis. All right, so some of you, some of you, are already well familiar with Robert's work. All right, but I was only recently introduced to him. But he is a political philosopher, Uh, and he looks at and researches kind of like the philosophy around democracy and as somebody who's like interested in philosophy and just kind of like asking these questions and everything i didn't even know this was like a branch of philosophy like looking at you know uh, uh, our democratic system so yeah he's written multiple books but the most recent one was sustaining democracy which is the uh, the one we d- talk about today and I, you know, I was like, oh, that seems kind of interesting as publisher reached out uh, or I reached out to the publisher. I can't even remember, but I grabbed an early copy. I'm like, this is amazing. This is such a fantastic book. So as you know, you know we're quite polarized and all that. But the central focus of his book, and it kind of builds off one of his previous books, was you know this book looks at not only how we're polarized, but what do we owe the other side? But you know it's it's really interesting because that's something that we need to ask ourselves and all that. But one of the questions I've had that I asked Robert about in this conversation is like, okay, I I get it, right? If if somebody on the other side, you know, they they have different views on like taxes or something like that, I'm like, okay cool, let's have a discussion. But what about when we see some somebody on the other side and we're just like, that is just morally just awful. I, I'm supposed to, you know, be okay with that. I'm supposed to agree with you. I'm supposed to be friends with you. And his answer answer is actually quite interesting. But yeah, I, I have thought about this for a while and I've been meaning to ask somebody about it. So I love that part of our, our conversation. But yeah, this book is so great. And, uh, you know, Robert, he's a, he's a professor and we chat a little bit about, you know, What it's like, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, college campuses and uh, political disagreements with, you know, like fellow professors or with students and overall just how we can have these conversations and, you know, what the book says, how we can sustain democracy, while also recognizing, you know, right from wrong and what policies might be better than others and and where we kind of stand our ground and when to give a little. But this all comes from like a philosophical angle. And yeah, he answered, helps me answer a lot of questions I had about our democratic system, because that's a lot of what he's looking at you know, with his, his research and his teaching and all that. So it is such a fantastic book. It just came out this week. So make sure you head down to the description below. Make sure you're following Robert over on Twitter and grab a copy of his book. All right. And while you're down there, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And I love chatting with all of you. And yeah, I'm working on a bunch of other stuff. So I put it all up on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. All right. But yeah, if you're new here, by the way, before we get before we get rolling, if you're new here, make sure you're following the podcast apple spotify whatever you're listening on make sure you hit that little follow button or that subscribe button and all that because i publish like crazy and you want to make sure you don't miss any episodes all right but anyways without further ado here's my conversation with robert talise about his brand new book sustaining democracy Hello, Robert. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you today, Chris?
0: I am fantastic. And I, I, was, I was lucky enough to have you send me an early copy of this brand new book. Uh, so for those who haven't met you yet or they don't know about your work, you've written quite a few books. And can you let us know a little bit of your background, but specifically like also what inspired you to write this book? book about the current state of democracy and a path forward and all that kind of stuff.
1: Well, good. So um, I'm a philosopher by training. Um, I um, completed my PhD in philosophy in 2001 uh, in New York City at the City University of New York. Um, My research uh, then, roughly 20 years ago, was uh, in political philosophy um, and uh, particularly, not so much on democracy, but on um, uh, questions about um, the justification of political orders, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the political philosopher Robert Nozick uh, famously said, you know, there's one question of politi- for political philosophy, why not have anarchy? Uh, (laughs) um, And so uh, I took that very seriously and I thought, well, um, under what conditions uh, are we really obligated to uh, consent to support, comply with um, a political order of any kind? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, part of my background really has to do with just the the question of um, what justifies political um, institutions of any kind.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and it struck me sort of very early in thinking through that question that if any type of political order has a chance of being justifiable, of being the kind of order that we ought to consent to mm-hmm. it would have to be a democratic political order. Um, that is, it struck me that um, democracy, is you know many things we think of democracy as you know majority rule constrained by constitutional uh, principles we think of democracy as voting and canvassing and shaking hands and kissing babies Um, and it is all of those things but one of the things that democracy is i think at the more fundamental level than any of these sort of um, observable manifestations like election days and speeches Mm -hmm. and things um One of the things that democracy is, I think at the most fundamental level is it's an attempt to solve a moral problem. Mm. And that problem is the problem of um, uh, creating a just, relatively just and stable political order among people understood as free and equal. Mm
2: -hmm. So,
1: you know, if you're a monarchist, if you're somebody who thinks that the political order is ordained somehow divinely and there is a natural hierarchy among people such that there are royals and there are subjects. Yeah. Uh, you can get an account of how the political world sort of gets, um, uh, gets justified by appeal to that divine order and that division, that divine hierarchy between royals and, and, and their subjects. But if you give all that up, <laughs> as we do uh you say no no wait there are no you know there are no people who are by nature subordinate to other people Mm -hmm. uh there are all (laughs) kinds of roles in which we play in which some people you know uh call the shots for others but nobody is assigned those roles or Mm -hmm. at least they shouldn't be um then politics becomes a different kind of problem it's not a matter of just maintaining order it becomes a matter of Maintaining order among people who are owed a justification for being involved in in the political uh, arrangements at all, um, and so you know, it struck me that well, democracy is an attempt to show how it's possible for there yeah. to be a government among people who are understood as equals. And let me just put the problem one more different, a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. wherever there's a political order, there are rules and policies and laws and enforcement structures that make people do things they don't want to do, Mm -hmm. right? Or don't think they should be made to do or don't think they should have to do. So Mm -hmm. where there's politics, there's always going to be exercises of power over people. And so one way to think of the moral problem is, well, how can you justify a, an arrangement by which some people exercise power over other people if we're committed to the fundamental premise that we're all equals here?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: democracy is an attempt to show how exercises of power over of, by some over others mm-hmm. can be rendered consistent with the equality of all the of all the members of the society the thought is when you are a part author of those principles those mm-hmm. policies those laws when you are in part a participant in creating the political order when you are an equal participant in the creating of the political order you retain your status as an equal even when the police officer is pulling you over and making you late for work, right? Okay. So that's sort of where I started um, moving in my research and sort of thinking whether that kind of story that I just laid out, Chris, can really um, withstand philosophical scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Um, And that naturally, (laughs) naturally led me into starting to think about um, the difference between thinking about democracy as a purely abstract philosophical conceptual uh, proposal, mm-hmm. um, and thinking about democracies as they actually function, and mm-hmm. so um, uh, the the new book, which is called "Sustaining Democracy: What We Owe to the Other Side," um, is a um, uh, is a follow up to uh, some earlier work. Yeah. Um, a 2009 book called Democracy and Moral Conflict, and then a 2019 book called Overdoing Democracy, um, where the attempt is to examine some of the dysfunctions that befall democracy, even when, and perhaps because citizens are doing roughly what they should be doing as, as democratic citizens, um, so the new book, Sustaining Democracy, uh, um, is about trying to give a plausible answer to a citizen, not to my, yeah, you know, yeah. my fellow philosophers, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's addressed to citizens um, who are wondering, I think often with very good reason, who are wondering, why do I owe my political opponents anything at all? yeah they're on the side of injustice they're only marginally committed to Mm -hmm. a democrat maintaining a democratic political order if i treat them as my equals if i see them as equal participants in creating government haven't i conceded something aren't i now setting myself up to be a kind of sucker because if they get their way politically they're not going to want to treat me as an equal so i'm kind of you know uh um uh, I'm kind of allowing myself to be victimized if I act as a citizen under the presumption that my political opponents are um, uh, are are merely mistaken rather mm-hmm. than perverse. Yeah, and the argument of the book is 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 the attempt to say, well, not so fast. I understand the conflict. I feel the conflict. And with respect to certain kinds of political opponents, um, you know, the answer is right. You, 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 they're not entitled to being treated as an equal. Mm-hmm. Different kind of issue. But what about the what about your political opponents who are merely mistaken, who are merely, you know, not astute about politics, who, um, you know, they 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 have political views that you find abhorrent. But that's just because they're ignorant about certain kinds of facts or they've been misled or Mm -hmm. they have just values and they prioritize values in ways that are slightly different from the way you prioritize them. Surely they're still your equals, even if they're wrong, Mm -hmm. because last point here, right? You know, democracy is such an important social good. No. That, you know, we tend to think that, um, you know, democracy is all sweetness and light. Uh, And certainly with respect to when it's contrasted with rather alternatives. Yeah. Okay, that's understandable. But democracy really um, is, you know, democracy requires us to face up to a couple of hard truths. Mm -hmm. And one of the truths, one of the hard truths of democracy is you don't always get your way. And being right about politics, having true beliefs about what justice requires, that's not enough to Mm -hmm. entitle you to get your way. You don't call the shots because you know better than other people, even Mm -hmm. people who are misled, misguided, mistaken, ignorant, misinformed,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: within a certain range of error. They're nonetheless your equals and when the democratic process produces the results that they favor Mm -hmm. democracy says government's got to enact their will even if you can show them that they're wrong Mm -hmm. that's a hard truth that's that's not an easy that's that's not an easy pill to swallow
0: yeah
3: but
1: uh that's the price uh that we all bear of living in a free society i would argue and do argue.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 yeah, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I've recently gotten into philosophy and especially like moral philosophy, just trying to understand, you know, because I, 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 I see, like, I grew up here in Vegas, as as we we were discussing, and and here in Las Vegas. I don't think a lot of people know this, but there are a ton, a ton of people from the Mormon church, right? A lot of my best friends, uh, you know, that I grew up with from the Mormon church. So I've seen people grow up and be raised because my family is pretty... Secular, right? See them raised completely different. But uh, you know, as I got older and just recently I'm just like, hey, you know, maybe their more their moral views are different because of the household they come from. And I started reading books like you know, Jonathan Heights, you know, The Righteous Mind and stuff, and trying to understand, okay, where are conservatives coming from, where are liberals coming from, and you know, just trying to put that into context. So uh, yeah and, and it's it's helped me out a lot but then when I came across your work and I'm like, oh I haven't even thought about these these uh, topics around democracy and I started asking a bunch of questions recently I think, since last year right like like why do we have a police department right why do people have to listen to the police why do they get this power and and all these things and there's certain structures because i also like learning about how just societies function and you know and as you were talking about it seems like hey there's some give and take and sometimes we don't always get our way but when you look at the alternatives it's like okay this seems like our best option so let's figure it out but even with you made so many great arguments, and you helped me understand and be like, all right, okay, Robert, I, I get it. I get it. I understand. But I'm hoping too in this conversation, you can help sell me on some things that I'm still trying to work through. Right? Because uh, I, I think, you know, obviously, there's the misinformation and all these things. And you know, I've, I've come to learn that a lot of people don't know what they don't know, or if you're in a certain bubble and, and all these things. But I think, one of the first things I want to ask you, because you talk about this in the book and I, I'm curious your thoughts on it. Like I, I'll, I'll frame it this way. I used to have immense anger issues. I even self-published a book when I got sober uh, a few years ago, uh, I got sober in 2012, but I wrote the book a few years ago, Rewire Your Anger, because it took me a long time to get over my anger issues, but I sit back and everybody is so angry it is so hard for people to have conversations and you you touch on this in the book like why do you think that people left right center whatever up down you know higher that like the elites the rich they're pissed off the poor people are pissed off the you know what i mean all angles people are really upset like where do you think all this anger has come from recently and like why we can't like, I, I'm just blown away that people can't just have these kind of civil discussions. You know what I mean?
1: Sure. So let me s- perfectly. That's, that's a central important question uh, facing us um, not only as sort of thinkers about politics, but as, you know, participate you know, citizens uh, in a democratic society. So let me start by saying one um, sort of social scientific thing you know i'm also yeah uh, yeah, i'm also a a professor of political science here at vanderbilt so you know every once in a while i have to talk about (laughs) you know data you know yeah Um, so here's the thing you know i i i tell people this um sometimes in response to the kind of issue you've just raised and um uh it's a it's typically a surprise so see if you find this surprising um the forget for a moment about Party leaders and the um, candidates and office holders and who got elected and forget about the the elite side of um, the Republican and Democratic parties in the country and forget about professional politicians and uh, and and office holders. Let's just think a little bit about the American electorate, mm-hmm. the citizens that are voting. Uh, um good. Um, The American electorate is no more divided over central questions of public policy than they were 30 years ago. Mm. Now, people say, how can that possibly be? So, well, think about it, right? Um, uh, You know, I'm old enough to remember a time when um, there were certain kinds of single voter issues uh that very clearly divided liberals and conservatives in the country in their voting behavior, like which are what? now non-issues. Stem cell research. Mm, okay. Euthanasia. Gay uh, marriage. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, forget about abortion, by the way. Now th- given what's going on in Texas or whatever, yeah. um, we're, we're about to see some very interesting social science go on mm-hmm. um, because um, I think uh, th- this actually is gonna backfire on the Republicans because yeah. the public sentiment, uh, even among conservative voters with respect to abortion has moderated. In fact, so not only are we not more divided than we were 30 years ago on several key issues we're less divided right and the three kinds of cases i just gave you stem cell research euthanasia uh, gay marriage and then just add abortion are all cases in which the public opinion among the electorate has shifted more Mm -hmm. liberal people are more accepting of the 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 sorts of things that as a new voter in the late 80s i remember you know in the, the first couple of elections i voted in I remember stem cells, euthanasia, gay marriage. These were the things that, you know, you found out somebody's view about, you know, any of these things and you knew what candidates they were going to vote for.
2: Mm. Now it's just,
1: these are just not like, who, who gets on the stump now and talks about stem cells? Nobody. <laughs> right. yeah. So that's one data point. Yeah. Now here's the curious um, uh, corollary. The American electorate is no more divided than it was 30 years ago. But cross-partisan animosity, dislike, disgust, distrust of non-partisans, of people we perceive to be our political others, Mm -hmm. right? Our political opponents. That has escalated in a way that outstrips any policy difference. Mm, Yeah. So, Now, that's just to put a finer point on the kind of question you're asking. Why is everyone so angry? Now, we've seen given these data. Well, here's one explanation that I think you're likely to get from the guy on the street, uh, but ultimately can't be the right explanation. I think you're like, we think we think we're divided very deeply and severely about the questions about what government should be doing, what the laws should be like. We think we're divided over those things when in fact we're not. So actual divisions over policy can't be the explanation, although I think that that's what people think. Mm-hmm. I think that here's, this is the, you know, and by the way, I think Jonathan Hate would agree with me on at least part of this, what I'm mm-hmm. about to say. The negative feelings, the cross-partisan animosity comes first. And the citizen infers from the fact that she dislikes, distrusts, is disgusted by, is put off by, you know, the neighbors who vote for the other side. Mm-hmm. She infers from her negative affect towards those people that there must be significant Disagreements over policy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that's all just really just to frame the question that you're asking: why Why is partisan animosity so heavily escalated in the absence of any commensurate disagreement over the things that politics is really about? Yeah, you know, laws and policies and how we're going to spend money and you know these kinds of things. Um, and I think that the the longer story here is kind of fascinating uh, in its own right. Um, You know, part of what we see in the same 30-year period that I was talking about, how, you know, disagreements over public policies haven't uh, exacerbated, over that same period, we see um, a pretty decisive, even if sometimes some periods gradual, shift towards thinking of partisan affiliation as fundamentally a matter of lifestyle Mm. so you know just to give you an example you know i grew up you know in northern jersey
3: yeah
1: Uh, that explains a lot about you know (laughs) what's gone wrong in my life but uh i grew up in northern jersey and um you know uh the people who lived across the street you know were democrats my parents were republicans the next door neighbor you know they people who lived across the street or next door to us, you know, there were all kinds of different political views. Um, and, um, my, my dad who was a, uh, was a conservative, you know, Reagan style conservative, um, you know, was friends with the guy across the street who was a union member and a, you know, a, a, straightforward, you know, uh, a liberal Democrat. Yeah. They were friends. They, you know they watched sports together i mean they did all kinds of things together that you know um they saw as just separate from their political allegiances which were at odds um but they went to football games together and watched you know baseball on tv and they Mm -hmm. did all you know okay that's the kind of relation that has become less and less common over the period of the mm-hmm. past 30 years uh since the 80s and 90s in particular so maybe a little bit longer than 30 that is liberal and demo- liberal slash democrat conservative slash republican have become the names not only of political commitments voting trends and all the rest being a liberal now is a lifestyle
2: mm-hmm.
1: Being conservative is a lifestyle. And in both cases, the liberal and conservative lifestyle are largely defined in terms of opposition to the way of life performed or inhabited by the others. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll just give a couple of quick examples, right? Mm -hmm. Think of how much popular political... um, sometimes posed as criticism, Um, maybe often uh, as often posed as satire, but think how often um, political discourse and political critique takes the form of mocking the other side's shopping habits. Attention Mm -hmm. Walmart shoppers. That's the start of a joke about conservatives, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Good. Now, that sort of that sort of divide we see in the country between—and by the way, this is again a little bit of you know a little bit of data here, right? You know, yeah. a pretty good indication of how a particular region in the country voted uh, uh, in the last couple of elections. Really good indicator. Really good way to predict is to look at the proximity of a Whole Foods grocery store Hmm. or a Cracker Barrel restaurant. The closer the Cracker Barrel, the more likely it is that that community voted conservative.
2: The closer
1: the Walmart, uh, um, the Whole Foods, the more likely it is that they voted uh, uh, liberal or democratic. Now, that same trend Between sort of grocery shopping and lifestyle choices, and who's driving a hybrid vehicle and who's driving an F one hundred and fifty, right? That trend or that 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 trend is replicated in Mm -hmm. the movies we watch, the television programs we tune into. Not only is it replicated where we get our news, we know that, right? Yeah. Uh, What internet sites we uh, we turn to for information, we know that that is strongly partisan sorted, but professions are partisan sorted now, such that it's very, very likely that your dentist is liberal. It's very, very likely that your surgeon is conservative. Um, mm-hmm. So occupations, professions, schools, congregations, um, religion, re- religious communities now uh, are um, uh, very visibly sorted into different partisan blocks. In fact, so yeah. you know, I live in Nashville, this is the South. You know, everywhere you look, if you sort of look long enough, you'll find a church Um, and um, churches now, and you know, um, I'm a secular guy, I don't know a lot about the doctrinal differences between these churches, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you what, every one of these churches does something so that you can, if you look You can discern the politics that are being represented in the church. So Mm -hmm. a bunch of churches are flying rainbow flags and have things on their, you know, their little signboard outside. Mm. Everyone is welcome. Love is love. Like, oh, those are the liberal churches. Yeah. And then there are others that don't have the rainbow flags that have signage that, um, is typically communicating messages of um, the fallenness of American society and the mm-hmm. dangers facing, uh, the moral dangers facing America. Um, like, hmm, those are the more conservative uh, uh, churches to be sure. Yeah. Okay, now what that means is this, here's the, the, the upshot, right? Um, <clears throat> well, think of it on terms with an analogy I'm sure, Chris, you're familiar with, I'm sure lots of the people who are tuning in are familiar with uh, a set of kind of, you know, um, concerns about echo chambers on the Internet. Yeah. Right. Like, well, what happens on the Internet is people sort of burrow into they go down into the rabbit hole. They you know, listen to louder and louder echoes of the, their own voices, they become mm-hmm. radicalized. And part of becoming radicalized is becoming uh, ever more deeply invested in seeing yourself in opposition to people who are not members of your own group. And so the need to feel resentment uh, 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 and indignation, the need to feel threatened and disgusted And put off by the other side is a way of affirming your authentic Mm -hmm. membership in your group of allies, and so that's how you get online, you know these you know super high levels of hostility over. Well, it often turns out to be nothing at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody posted something you didn't like. You know, you retweeted something I didn't like. Now, you know, I'm comparing you to Hitler or something. Okay, we have that story, and I think that that's a pretty, you know, as far as it goes, you know, we're not clear how far it goes, but as far as it goes, it's a it. It, it seems to me to be an accurate story that. The animosity grows because pressures to signal to your allies that you are an ally Mm -hmm. escalate online. And the best way to signal to your allies that you are an ally is not to try to sort of figure out if everybody's on the same page about the finer details of immigration yeah because that's you know there's no group of people i don't care who are on the same side politically as far as their voting behavior goes who are going to agree about all of the details about immigration yeah. they might agree about you know we should loosen restrictions we should tighten them but once you get sort of into the granular details about well which restrictions should be loosened or tightened how do we do it what should you know what should be revised then you're going to get in party disagreement. So you don't want to do that as a way of signaling your commitment mm-hmm. to the group and your allyship with your other with your fellow liberals or conservatives. Mm-hmm. What's the best way to, to signal your allyship with your with your allies? Escalate the terms with which you trash and demonize the other side. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to establish yourself as an authentic ally with the people who you associate with. So if you think that that general picture is accurate about how hostilities escalate online, then look to the world around us. The world around us is also an echo chamber because You shop at Whole Foods, you don't go to Walmart, you go to Target, you drive the hybrid car, you wear the yoga pants, you don't wear camouflage, you carry a tote bag. Yeah, These are all ways of sorting your social environment according to your partisan identity. Mm -hmm. It is increasingly unlikely if you get your coffee at Starbucks Increasingly unlikely that the person waiting behind you and the barista behind the the bar. Increasingly unlikely that that person is conservative. Yeah. On the other hand, you buy your coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. It's the other way. That's no, where no. conservatives get coffee, by the way. Except in Massachusetts, but that's a all other story. But okay. um, but that's where you know so. Our social spaces are sorted in roughly the same ways in which our online spaces are sorted, according to partisan identity, same argument holds. Yeah, right. You wear the yoga pants and carry the tote bag and the reusable uh, uh, um, water uh, uh, container, not only because that conforms with your values, Mm -hmm. but also as a way to signaling to others, the people who you will be surrounded by In the social spaces you choose to occupy the Whole Foods, the Target, uh, um, uh, you signal to them that you are an ally. Yeah. And same goes on on the other side, right? I mean, again, I'm in Nashville, right? Uh, Which is a pretty pretty liberal city as far as Tennessee goes. But you take a a couple of miles outside of the core of Nashville, Mm -hmm. and it's a red state. Yeah, and you do that, and you start seeing drastic increases in camouflage attire. Now, why, like, is people like that? I mean, you know, I guess they, yeah, I'm sure people do, but what's the purpose of camouflage attire? Well, in part, it's the kind of style that signals to other conservatives allyship.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting, too. Uh, uh, formerly, when I was working for this National uh, Addiction Center, their, their main office, their corporate office is located in Brentwood. Right outside of Nashville. Right. But when I would go down there to the corporate office, you go into Nashville and you could see like you were just mentioning, like, I I can picture exactly what you're talking about. Right. In the city, you get a little bit more liberal and, you know, I would take Ubers and stuff. So I, you know, talk and, you know, we'd walk around downtown Nashville and stuff like that. And, and yeah, it's interesting how quick it can change. But even here in Las Vegas, uh, and that data you mentioned about, you know, Cracker Barrel and Whole Foods, you can see it shift from neighborhood to neighborhood. But two things that I'm always, that I that I think, you know, I'm always trying to think of like the, the core, like the root of the problem. And I'm always thinking about status and signaling, right? I recently had Will Storr on here. He just wrote a great book called The Status Game, right? Yeah. And, and people are fighting for status within groups, kind of like what you're saying. And, and you're signaling it. And we're seeing We're seeing just every issue, you know, from vaccines to masks and everything becoming this kind of political thing. And when you're trashing the other side or you're like, you know, uh, uh, protecting your kids from having to wear masks and everything, you're, you're trying to solidify this kind of status and you're signaling it. But it's also strange too how far signaling has gone like I remember growing up just you know uh 2001 we're coming up on the 9-11 uh anniversary I was like a freshman or something like that in high school and you know obviously there was a ton of American flags that went up right after 9-11 that's you know people are showing their their state pride but I've I've recently noticed especially like since like 2016 when I really started getting interested in politics What's really interesting to me? We're all sitting here as Americans, right? But now, if you see somebody like waving American flag in, in their house, on their car, or whatever, just just our flag, you're I, I I immediately think, okay, you're a conservative, right? Like that, and that's that's really weird because that that belongs to all of us, right? So signaling has almost been amped up and I, and we like to think how like, you know, evolved we are, we're no longer cavemen, but it almost seems like the tribalism has been amplified in recent years. You know what I mean? So it, 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 almost feels like we're, we're going backwards. Cause like you were saying, when you were growing up, like people could talk and just, you know, uh, you know, cross those party lines easily and hang out and it didn't kind of muddy up relationships and, you know, um, I grew up in Southern and Central California and there's a lot of mixture, right? And I don't see that anymore. And this I'm talking like 90s-ish and stuff. So it's it's really interesting. Do you think that's do you think that's mainly like the media or is it more us? Because your book is focused at us, the people, right? So I'm always wondering like, where do we fix it? Do we do we get the media companies to get in line or does it start with us having conversations?
1: Good. So, you know, there are two different questions, right yeah. uh, th- That at least two different questions. So let me just. So one question is, you know, how did we get here? Yeah. Um, the other question is, what do we do about it? Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things that's interesting, well, one of the things that I find interesting about um, uh, being a philosopher who's got one foot in the empirical stuff that the, my colleagues in political science departments do is that sometimes you come across uh, the 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 social scientists not you know, failing to respect a distinction that is very obvious when you're a philosopher, mm-hmm. you want to say, well, you know, sometimes the account of how we got to where we're at is not really a good guide to figuring out what to do.
3: Right? Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Sometimes and or sometimes, you know, figuring out what causes polarization, might be a good guide to figuring out how to stop its increase, Mm. but that's not always a good guide to figuring out how to reverse it once it's already happened, right? So it's easy to find um, uh, commentary on on some of the empirical data that doesn't respect all of what strike me as really crucial philosophical distinctions. So Mm. let me say this, look, I think that ultimately the right causal story about the problem is the centering of political identity. Once our political, that is now I'm here saying, once our partisan affiliations expand into lifestyles uh. and then become, right, the central lens through which we understand everything else about us and others, that's the causal, That that's how things get amped up and all the rest. Now. That, in fact, is happening, is evident not only from the kinds of things I already mentioned, but just here's another sort of set of surprising things. Negative, atti- disapproving attitudes towards cross-partisan marriage in the United States. Yeah, are yeah. Now more intense than disapproving attitudes towards interfaith marriages and interracial marriage. Let me put it that way the American electorate is more accepting of marriages across religious and racial and ethnic lines than they are marriages across partisan lines. That's new. And that's not only due to, you know, it's not only due to uh, the the, the fact that we've become more tolerant of racial, ethnic and religious diversity. We have. (laughs) But... Mm-hmm. At the same time, the animosity towards the other side has escalated our disapproval. So mm-hmm. we are more disapproving of cross-partisan marriages than we were 30 years ago. Uh, so the the, the the data is not or the, the finding is not only the result of um, mitigating hostility towards cross-religion, interfaith and, and interracial marriage and mm-hmm. interethnic marriage. Okay, um, so that's that's you know like now (laughs) um our partisan identity is even more central Mm -hmm. to how we understand who we are as individuals than our religious commitments that's a big change in the country we used to think that you know being a christian or being a christian of a certain denomination you know being a religious affiliate of a particular kind was the defining characteristic for our social identity right mm-hmm. now politics has saturated that dominated it such yeah. that yeah well being a particular being a particular kind of religious affiliate is now understood as the implication of certain political commitments. So politics has dominated uh, uh, religious commitment and every other kind. So mm-hmm. once partisan identity becomes the central identity, we're set up for this kind of the, these kinds of dysfunctions where everything now becomes politics, every little bit of social behavior. Mm -hmm. Now becomes legible to your partisan opponents and your allies as expressive of your political commitments. So, Mm -hmm. you know, carrying the tote bag. Yeah. Right. By the way, you know, tote bags skew heavily liberal, right? The more tote bags you own, (laughs) the more likely you are to have voted for Barack Obama, right? So, tote bags skew heavily, heavily liberal. And, Correspondingly, um, uh, uh, on I haven't checked this recently, um, but uh, I, when I discovered it, I was absolutely tickled. Um, on the alt right, well, what we used to call alt right. I don't know if it's alt anymore, uh, but on the um, Infowars site and on the Breitbart site, you can go to their online stores
2: mm-hmm.
1: and buy buy items that are that bear the logo of InfoWars or Breitbart of all kinds flasks and, mm. you know, socks, you know, T-shirts and hats and wristbands and all kinds of things that, you know, say Breitbart or whatever on them, yeah. uh, couldn't buy a tote bag. They would not, there was no tote bag for sale, right? Like, oh, I, I get it, right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's that tote bags skew liberal. Maybe tote bags are for people who think climate change is the thing. Maybe tote bags are for people who want a virtue signal in certain ways. Who knows, right? But anyway, that's so. Now, what can we do about it? Now, here's here's the reason why the account I offer in sustaining democracy is so focused on mm-hmm. us. Right, uh, I think it's Pollyannish. I I, I think that um, uh, the news outlets, the internet platforms, um, the um, uh, the politicians, the parties mm-hmm. gain too much
2: yeah. from
1: how things are to. Think that the way out is via their intervention,
2: mm-hmm.
1: despite the fact that um, they're constantly saying, Hey, this is a big problem. Polarization is a big problem. Hey, we're uncivil to one another. The lack of civility is a big problem, as Joe Biden said in his inaugural address, right? We can't be enemies. We mustn't see each other as enemies. We're fellow citizens. We may be opposed, but we're not enemies. We need civility. We need unity, 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 right? Yeah. By the way, that's an, that is a across the partisan divide. That is a highly popular message. That is one of the things that the American electorate, one of the few things that the American electorate seems to agree on is that American politics has become too hostile, too uncivil, uh, too toxic. That seems mm-hmm. to be something's agreed upon across the board. Problem is that you ask the people who say, oh yeah, politics has become too toxic. You say, oh yeah, what's, who, what's, who's to blame? The conservatives say the Democrats are the source of all the incivility in the country. Mm -hmm. You know, the Democrats say it's the Republicans. So we all lament the lack of civility, but we lay the blame strictly with our partisan opponents. And so you want to say, oh, you know, the call for unity and more civility really just is a different manifestation of our partisan divide. Got it right. And just to say why, you know, um, uh, you know, platforms uh, and uh, news outlets and, and politicians benefit from this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it, partisan animosity. Um, what sometimes in the literature called negative partisanship, which is you, your, your understanding of your allegiance to your own side is ultimately understood by you in terms of the extent to which you dislike, distrust the other side.
2: Right. <laughs> um,
1: so, negative partisanship is is uh, is at a is is might be at an all time high. It's 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 higher than usual in the country, yeah. and I think it's higher than it's been for thirty years. That is the uh, I understand myself as a liberal primarily in terms of, you know, how terrible things would be if the conservatives get into power. Now, um, negative affect, negative emotions, like resentment, indignation, anger. Mm-hmm we know this just you know this is just sort of psych 101 right yeah. uh you know you don't have to be even political psych 101 just psychology 101 negative affect is motivationally among the most potent right uh yeah. uh, uh it's it's motivationally potent as far as aff- as far as affective and other kinds of psychological states go mm-hmm. right that is anger I- anger resentment indignation all of those negative um, what are sometimes in philosophy called reactive attitudes, right, Where they're targeted at some particular thing, right, um, those negative attitudes are, 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 are motivationally very powerful. Yeah. And so now you're starting to see the argument why you can't count on the politicians, the platforms, or the media outlets, Uh, to do anything about this, despite the fact that they're always talking about how terrible it is. It's good business.
3: Yeah, for sure.
1: When you can count on, right, you're trying to get voters out to the polls. And let's be frank, um, you know, again, over the last 20 years or so, especially at the national level, American American politics is fundamentally a voter mobilization operation. Mm -hmm. it's very it's it's only incidentally about governing policy making making things better you know doing things that are going to help people Mm -hmm. you you know you get some of that but ultimately the purpose of winning an election is to win the next one and the the goal of the parties by the way this is now explicit it seems to me right Mm -hmm. the it's hard to find a national level politician who's not. It's hard to find a national level politician not talking about the next election at any time in any public statement. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. well, wait a minute. Isn't your you're a senator? Isn't your job something other than winning the next election for yeah. your, the people in your party? We've kind of accepted this now, right? So. Politics is um, about winning elections. We know in the country that um, elections, given the way the the electorate is configured, winning elections is not about changing any minds. The way you win elections is you motivate the people who are already inclined to vote for you to get out and vote. That's what politics is. It's a mobilization game, a heavily polarized electorate that is polarized along this affective dimension of negative partisanship towards the other side only benefits politicians and their parties yeah same goes for media outlets and internet platforms if i can as you know i'm i'm a media outlet how do i make money this is uh know this is an old story how do i make money i'm selling advertisements does tesla want to advertise uh, on my on on my uh, you know during my show when it doesn't know the average income of the person tuning in well no right if Tesla is going to be advertised it really should be to people of a certain with a certain kind of economic profile or yeah. a certain kind of income right okay well if there are reliable ways to infer from mm-hmm. certain facts about how a person lives like their zip code, right? Their economic bracket, we know that that's true, right? You're telling me your zip code, it's very easy. You can go do this on the internet. What's your zip code? I can probably guess, you know, a pretty narrow range what your salary is, right? Um, So where you live is tied to your economic circumstance, but certain factors of your economic circumstance, your occupation, how many kids you might have, these are Mm -hmm. all very tightly tethered now because politics is this mega identity, the central, the the, Mm -hmm. the sort of center of gravity for our social selves, right? Um, It's like now I can infer all, reliably infer all kinds of facts about you and how you live and where you vacation and whether you own a passport and what languages you speak and what food you like. I can infer all that from some pretty textbook yeah. some some pretty phone book kind of style information about you
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's a benefit to the media outlets because yeah. now they get to say to tesla look the people who are tuning into this program they tend to be this kind of person
2: mm-hmm. people
1: who are this kind of person like our viewers also tend very reliably to be this other kind of person <laughs> Right? Yeah. they like you know luxury cars yeah Uh, they're not buying hybrids they're buying luxury cars guess what now we can charge you money for advertising that we can give you pretty very reliable data shows is going to hit the target you're going to get your message out to the people who are most likely to respond to it that's all to the it's to the benefit of uh um uh all of it's it's to the benefit of the internet platforms same reason they're interested in selling advertising you know, They're they're selling your attention to advertisers they need to be able to say they're selling the attention of the right kind of person to yeah. the advertiser so i don't think that there's a way out that has to do or that that can rely on uh politicians and and uh, media outlets and internet platforms yeah. i think that the only way out of this is to change things about ourselves yeah. um, as democratic citizens. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I, I I think about that a lot, and I try to, you know, I, I'm really into just you know psychology, and you know, there's you know a whole bunch of like behavioral psychology and stuff. And one of the things I think about, I wonder if it would help us have more conversations if we realize the people who are profiting. Off of this, like you mentioned, you know, Infowars and, uh, you know, Breitbart and everything like that, like they are selling you status signals, right, but I watch a lot of independent media as well, and even if you get away from the CNNs and the Fox News, these, uh, you know, these YouTube channels that are independent. They, they know, right? Like even if like just, I think a good example is like the Young Turks, right? Mm-hmm. If they sell merch and if, you, if you're a member or you do, you know, whatever, it's a pretty good signal of what tribe you're with and everything. So aside from, you know, just the mainstream stuff, we also have this lower level stuff, but then it's also cars we drive, clothes we wear and all these other things. And I think if we'd all just sat back and just like got out of the fog for a second, we're like, oh crap, people are making a lot of money off of pushing these things but you know a lot of it too it it feels like it ties into just how morality right and and you were mentioned like those negative emotions it all seems to kind of funnel back to our moral views and here's here's the main thing where i was excited to talk with you about because you talk about this in sustaining democracy right where we're having these conversations and i feel robert i feel like i am one of the most open-minded people ever, right? I could talk to somebody, I get it. I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand your religious beliefs and stuff like that. And that's why you think this this way. But it feels like there's certain topics where it gets like, like, okay, objectively on a moral place, like from a moral stance, I think we can all agree this is bad. So I'm hoping you can maybe, I don't know, show me something that I'm not seeing because I feel like sometimes it's very, it's minimized. I think a great example, I don't know if you remember this story from, maybe last year, maybe pre-pandemic. But anyways, Ellen DeGeneres, super progressive liberal, right? Takes a selfie with George Bush and people flip out, right? Ellen comes out and she's like, hey, I'm just, I just want to show that you could be friends with people from the other side. And I don't mean, I don't want to catastrophize. And I know there's a lot of other, uh, a lot of opinions and maybe I just don't know everything, but I feel like that's minimizing somebody saying like, yo, you're hanging out with George Bush because a lot of people see him starting the war in Afghanistan and all the, and, and especially cause a lot of it's coming back out since we left it, Afghanistan. I'm like, it's a little bit more than like, oh, he just doesn't believe in tax cuts. You know, or like he believes in tax cuts. I'm like, I, I think we're talking about bombing and killing civilians, or even if we're talking about Obama, right? Like, and, and the drone strikes while he was there, it's like, like i think like when we're talking about morality i think that's a little bit more justified it's not it's not just i just disagree with your economic policies we're talking about death and and then you get into topics like healthcare and the justice system um when when vaccinations are politicized and we're sitting here with like s- over half a million deaths in the united states you know what i mean yeah. I feel like morally, it, it starts to be like okay. Now we're we've crossed into a moral place where it's not as like oh I'm I'm morally upset about the way you view very minor things. You see, right. do you, does that make sense? So oh, I want to I want to connect with others because I remember just during the last election, they're like oh you won't talk to me just because I voted for Trump. I'm like well. Trump also refused to denounce white supremacists in a debate. So that's, so if you back him, I, you know, it's kind of mixed in with the pot, you know what I mean? So help me understand how I could better do that, because it's very hard for me to separate those things, even though I think that people are able to compartmentalize that, right? They're like, oh, I, d- I didn't vote for Trump because he he's with not white nationalists. I voted for Trump because of his immigration policy or something. It's like, okay, I get that, but it, it seems like it's just too closely mixed in together, you know?
1: So right. help, help me with that, Robert. I'd appreciate okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try. So two things. Um, so the uh, the 2019 book, Overdoing Democracy, tries to argue, I think successfully argues that, um, you know, part of the task of managing these dysfunctional forces uh, for democratic citizens, polarization and the demonization of the other side and the rest, has to do with finding and reclaiming regions within social space for cooperative activities where politics is just beside the point. Um, So the idea that there could be um, cooperative interactions among people where they're not bracketing their political differences, but they're just not aware that there are political differences. It's just you know who you voted for is, is as is as irrelevant to what we're doing <laughs> right now as you know the the interior color you know uh, of your bathroom. You know yeah. who cares? We're here to do something else, right? The very fact that the the we we hear the 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 term non political cooperative endeavor as an occasion to chuckle or as something to be suspicious of is I think a symptom of the centralizing of partisan identity right, that is that we've we've come to see everything as prepackaged in the categories of. Contemporary partisan divides, and I think we need to figure out what I don't know what they are, I mean mm-hmm. I, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but you know, so I don't think that the solution to any of this here i'll say something that you know puts some of my fellow democratic theorists in philosophy and political science on edge i don't think the solution to any of this is you know go get a beer with your you know republican friends and you know try to try to see that they might have a point yeah i don't think that's and by the way i also don't think that heated even aggressive and um, adversarial democratic divisions among partisans. I don't see that as necessarily democratically dysfunctional. I think democracy is a kind of agonistic, you know, battle, but, you know, I think that, you know, Feeling that if the other side gets elected in the midterm elections, things are going to get really bad from the point of view of justice for the country. I think that that's just inherent in what democratic citizenship is—moral investment in your Mm -hmm. side as the side that's on the side of justice. I think is just you know that's just part of what it is to be a democratic citizen. So Mm. I'm not a you know reach across the aisle guy. I want to say we need to figure out ways to interact with one another in which we're not reaching across the aisle because we're not doing politics. Yeah. That's a puzzling thought for us as citizens now. And I think that's symptomatic. That's not the counter example or the objection to, I think that's symptomatic. Everything is politics. How could everything be
2: politics? <laughs>
1: politics has to itself be about something that follows then that not, that, that the something has to be not politics, right? Okay that's one side of of the argument. That's the the part that's expressed and and argued for in the 2019 book, Overdoing Democracy. Now, the follow-up, the the new book, Sustaining Democracy, makes the following move. See how you like it. Yeah. Because it says, uh, uh, as you may have uh, been aware, it says, look, okay, so we need occasions for um, non political cooperation and activities and endeavors where we're not suppressing politics. It's just, you know, we're doing something other than politics. Yeah. Okay, Talise, uh, the critic says, when we are doing politics, how am I supposed to proceed, given the fact that the other <laughs> side is absolutely depraved? Yeah. And the account I develop in Sustaining Democracy says this look, although the moral challenge of democratic citizenship is occasioned by the fact that you are inclined, perhaps with perfectly good reason, to see your political opponents as enemies because they are on the side of injustice, even though that's the occasion for the, why do I have to treat them as equals, given that they ultimately are on the wrong side of all the questions. And if they get their their way, justice will suffer, right? Um, That's the occasion for the problem. So look, the real issue here though is, has more to do with your own comportment towards your own ideas. That is, I wanna say this, part of the problem of our political divisions, part of the problem of political polarization as it's sometimes called often without a lot of nuance, but you know, um, part of that problem has to do with the ways in which group dynamics, given the centering of partisan identity and the need to signal to allies, our allyship and the way to do that, the fact that the way to do that is to you know, amplify your dislike and distrust and disgust with the other side, given all of those sort of political psychological facts that are sort of um, um, in play, mm-hmm. um, we lose sight of the idea, not that, hey, at the end of the day, maybe our opponents have a point. Given, the, given whatever opponent you're talking about, I, I'm perfectly willing to say, no, there are some people who are on the other side of the, pol- the political divide from my side. They don't have a point. I don't have to think they might have a point. Yeah. I don't have to think that they've got anything to say that could possibly move me closer to accepting their view. I, don't, I think that they're demonstrably wrong about immigration let's just say. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to say, look, the real issue about polarization has to do with overconfidence in your own views. And that's Mm. not a, hey, you got to listen to the other side thought. The thought is overconfidence in your views has the following feature as well. We lose sight of the fact that our political thinking can always be improved. That doesn't mean improved by moderating and moving closer to, to the other side, it mm-hmm. just means, no, like you can, you know, you, you don't have to change your mind or change your politics to think, you know what, my view about the need for uh, uh, the elimination of most immigration controls, and here I'm just talking about myself, right, mm-hmm. like, I think there shouldn't be, I, I don't, I don't see why state borders should be, be relevant morally to where I can be and what I can do at all, right? Yeah. So let's just say, like, okay, I've got a, uh, uh, I've I've got a a a, a, a pretty libertarian view uh, uh, about immigration. I'm a social democrat otherwise, but I think, yeah, you know, uh, immigration is, is 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 something that should be almost. Uh, you know, Maybe there shouldn't be open borders, but it should be almost uh, uh, um, uh, without uh, restriction. Yeah. Um, now, let's just say I think that now there are dozens of ways I could start. You know, I'm not going to, but I could start sort of. Well, look, there are, dozen, there are dozens of ways of articulating that, that rough, brute thought. Mm -hmm. Okay, some of them are better than others. Some of them are more precise than others. Some of them are less vulnerable to objection than others. And I want to say, yeah, part of the political psychology is we lose sight of the fact that when we're not hearing the other side, we lose sight of the permanent fact of our own improvability in Mm -hmm. our political thinking not because we need to concede that they, the other side could be right, but by listening to the other side, we hear ways in which our own views can be misunderstood, misinterpreted. We learn new ways to make our expressions of our views more precise. We learn new ways to address objections, criticisms, mm-hmm. misinterpretations, uh, 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 straw man versions of our views. And these are modes of epistemic improvement. We are improving our own capacity to be a good exponent of our own view, not by moderating anything or thinking that, hey, maybe the other side's got a point. We don't have to think any of that. You can still think that they're (laughs) rotten through and through and say, yes, but, Part of what polarization and the other political psychological phenomena do to us as individuals is we get so wrapped up in the group dynamics of signaling our allyship by amplifying our dis- dislike for the other side yeah. that we lose sight of the fact that politics is about formulating positive proposals. And you got to do that in a way that's careful and precise and attentive to all kinds of nuance that polarization leads us to just overlook it's often enough like it's often enough, by the way just say that you know for my liberal friends it's often enough just to tell jokes about how stupid MAGA you know how stupid the MAGA people are to be sort of on the in, you know with you know um, yeah. liberal academics and you said well wait a minute <laughs> surely uh, Surely once we win the election and then win the midterms and all the, whatever we do like once we you know uh, uh, prevail politically now we got to figure out okay what's the immigration policy going to be like yeah yeah and that's where we're going to disagree why because there are lots of views about the immigration policy that are consistent with my overall partisan comportment so the guy across the hall is not you know he believes in much stricter Uh, immigration uh uh, regulations than Mm -hmm. i do because he's less cosmopolitan and more of a you know national identity and self-determination guy okay fine but we're gonna have an argument now and that's not in in its structure that's not different from my argument with uh uh uh, with a republican colleague yeah i i think look the guy over there he votes for the same guy as i do right yeah his view about immigration is, from my perspective, also inconsistent with justice. I think justice demands that we remove the restrictions, right? He yeah. thinks, no, justice demands that we preserve na- you know, the, the identity, the integrity, and the national self-determination of the community in the country. Yeah. I think that that's fantastical and, um, uh, uh, and actually just not a viable conception of justice. Yeah. So I've got, from the philosophical point of view, my beef with that guy who's on my side is structurally similar to my beef with the guy who votes for the wrong guy, for the wrong candidate. Mm. We lose sight of that fact about democratic politics because the polarization and other political psychological phenomena mislead us into thinking that the only divides are the partisan divides when they're not yeah. And that once your side prevails, politics is now over. See, that that's just false. Yeah.
3: Right? yeah. And not
1: all of the political issues come prepackaged as you know in way in categories and in vocabularies that are legible to our current divide. So here's what I recommend at the end of sustaining democracy. I say, look, it's gonna sound Given some, give the book is not out yet, but I've given some talks about the book to <laughs> audiences, and you know, get this sort of incredulous stare when I say the kind of thing I'm about to say. But part of what we need uh, when we're doing politics is um, uh, distance. We need mm. to think about politics in ways. Uh, we need occasions for reflecting on politics and issues in democracy we need ways to think about big questions in political theory from a perspective Mm -hmm. or under circumstances that aren't calling uh aren't calling upon our partisan uh, uh alliances so what i say is you know go google this is what democracy looks like yeah. You'll get tens of thousands of photos of people carrying signs in groups, in public spaces. Good. That is what democracy looks like, at least some of the time. I want to say, Yeah, but here's the thing that democracy can also look like. Sitting in my chair, reading Thomas Hobbes, right? Reading Aristotle, right? Thinking about, you know, Thucydides, right? That is thinking about issues of issues confronting the human endeavor mm-hmm. to get the political world right that aren't legible immediately, at least, if ever. Yeah. In the aren't translatable into the categories of contemporary political divides, right? Be yeah. saying, well, wait a minute. The spectrum of political thought is broader. Well, lo and behold, the spectrum of political thought is broader than the spectrum of Republican, conservative, Democrat, liberal opinion in the United States in the year 2021. Yeah. And I think that that kind of detachment, that kind of solitude, that kind of thinking and reflecting on politics in a way that unsettles and decenters our partisan identity. Is not a call for sort of irrelevant political abstract reflection. I want to say, reflecting on, reflecting on politics in a context where our immediate issues and and political and and partisan identities are not called into play is the political relevance of, you know, of, of of you know reading Thomas Paine, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, uh, or reading a section of Aristotle where he's trying to count the number of the number of kinds of democracy. I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with this. You know, Aristotle like, oh, well, there, maybe there's eight different kinds of. Well, here are different. Here's eight different kinds of democracy. I'm like, well, yeah. wow. is that right? Yeah. yeah, And that's not in the service of some particular political agenda that we're that we're that we're embroiled in now. It's mm-hmm. not relevant in that crass sense of relevance it's not in the service of some present political objective yeah it's relevant in the broader sense it's just a way of saying wait a minute there's more to politics than you know Donald Trump versus Joe Biden yeah
3: yeah imagine
1: that and I think that makes us better citizens right here and right now confronting the political issues that are confronting us as an electorate To sometimes get some social distance from the political fray. Yeah. How's that?
0: That's- yeah, no, that, that, that helps a lot. This is why I love talking with authors and getting some clarity and stuff like that, because, because, yeah, uh, you know, and maybe I, I'm, I, I misinterpreted while reading and stuff. But, you know, just hearing you say, like, yeah, I'm not advocating to just go grab a beer with everybody, you know, and, but also, like you said, like, I, I I've said this a million times, and I, I want to, I don't know, write you know, a blog or something about this, but I purposely read books, uh, a few, well, a lot of different types of books, but books from uh, people I just ideologically disagree with, right? Like you, I'm very, like, I, I i consider myself a social Democrat. You know what I mean? And I think we're on the lot of same page with all that, but like, I'll read a book from people on the right. You know what I mean? Just to better understand, but kind of like you mentioned too, part of it's just, so I'm better equipped to defend my ideas. But even when you talk about Aristotle and stuff like that, and I, uh, as I, w- I was telling you before the podcast, like something I'm trying to do is get people to broaden out and, try to, you know, be interested in these other topics. Like I love, never in a million years, I think I'd like learning about philosophy and stuff like that. But like you said, it kind of distances me from stuff going on right now and just helps me kind of look at situations in different ways and get my wheels turning. What I love about philosophy too, is I like a walk away from a, a, a book and be like, I don't really have any answers from that book. I have a lot of questions, you know, and it helps me kind of look at this stuff. And And let me ask you this too, Robert, do, do I have time for one more question that I'm dying to ask you about resolving this? Okay. So we, so I'll frame it this way. Like, uh, for example, with, with my girlfriend or with my son or close friends, close family, I'll argue with them. And you know why? Because I love them. Right. But some random person, like, you know, we pick and choose our battles and stuff like that. So one thing like, like you were talking about, you know, it's more than just Donald Trump or Joe Biden and, you know, and we need to, you know, now that our side won, we need to criticize and everything. Well, a great example is yesterday, you know, all, you know, all disagree with people on, you know, my side on the left. And I'm curious your thoughts about this or potential solutions I've noticed recently, and there's a lot of conversations I'm sure you've seen about like woke culture and all that kind of stuff but it is so hard to have conversations within our group. And I don't know if I've just had bad luck, but I've have, I have actually found it easier to have con- good faith conversations across party lines, right? Like I've had conversations where we've exchanged data and resources. People thank me and say, hey, like thanks for like actually listening and being open to my ideas. But like yesterday, for example, Uh, I was having conversations about uh, just some like conversations around trans rights and things like that and whatever. And I was getting shut down. Like they weren't even willing to have a conversation. And I'm like, I'm on your side. Right. So I I'm curious, you know, like, do you see this as an issue like within our, like within, within parties? And what, what do you think I don't know. What do you think some, you know, how did we get there and what are some solutions for that? Because it seems, it seems to me, and this is something that comes up quite often. I don't know if you heard yesterday about Peter Boghossian resigning and, you know, people have their opinions about him, but I do see what he's saying where people shut down conversations and it's most likely from the left, my, my side. And I don't, I don't know why that is or what we do about it because no, nothing gets anywhere if we can't at least talk. But people are like, nope, nope, this, this, this matter is taken care of. We can't even talk about it, you know? So, right.
1: so lastly, I want to hear your thoughts on that
0: issue we're dealing with.
1: So the, the thought really here is, or the, 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 the leading thought is, yeah, uh, the kind of phenomenon you're describing is perfectly predictable From the point of view of the political psychology and the belief polarization phenomenon, right? As Mm. I put it uh, uh, in one of the early chapters of the book, each chapter of the book begins with a little vignette, you know, actual, you know, true story of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, some encounter I've had as just a guy walking walking around the world, right? Um, But yeah, the you know the the tendency, um, or I should say, belief polarization. Uh, that cognitive phenomenon that leads like-minded people to shift towards more extreme, radical uh, 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 versions of themselves in the presence of their allies. Um, That phenomenon leads us to um, uh, elevate our um, sense of the value of conformity among our allies. So our more partisan selves are also more conformist So as we become more invested in establishing to our allies, our allyship by way of demonizing the other side, we as a group, as an alliance, become Mm -hmm. more invested in our homogeneity. Got it. Not only with respect to our beliefs, but with respect to expanding range of behaviors. So that's part of the sort of group dynamics of, uh, of, um, of polarization and uh, the sort of, tri- we might just say, broadly speaking now, these sort are of the tribal uh, tendencies within politics. But there's one of the upshots of that. It's the phenomenon you're describing. As we become m- m- more polarized, more invested in, you know, in-group conformity and homogeneity, we also become more inclined to have the following thought with respect to the with respect to the questions that really matter to our group mm-hmm. to think that there's another side is to be on it yeah right? oh
0: that's yeah that's perfectly to think said. there's a
1: question <laughs> is already to stand in opposition to our side now We can give the explanatory story about why that's exactly what one should, yeah, that's what should be predicted by a populace that is heavily polarized into tribal camps that are increasingly uh, uh, invested in their own homogeneity, increasingly uh, hierarchical, uh, as they tend to be, Um, you know, groups that are very invested in conformity also have to be hierarchical because mm-hmm. if you want conformity among your allies you need tastemakers right yeah. you need you need influencers right so you need somebody who's going to say here's what it looks like to be a good progressive yeah. now fall in line right okay now so that strikes me and the phenomenon you're describing strikes me as the real cost of the way we are currently conducting ourselves politically doesn't have to i mean I, again let me just repeat hostile relations with my political opponents i don't think are as such democratically dysfunctional or problematic that's politics yeah polarization poses the following problem for our alliances polarization turns our political friends into enemies yeah. because as the pressures Right. As we shift into our more extreme selves, the pressures for in-group unity, conformity and compliance escalate the need for strong um, signals of partisan allyship mm. also amp up. And what happens? The group starts splintering you know. into, right, factions between the true believers and the hardliners and the posers. Right. No, <laughs> yeah. right. By the way, no, here's just, you know, another feature of the political psychology here. Uh, and again, this is one of those things I tell people about this, this series of findings and they're like, whoa, right. But here it goes, right. The black yeah. sheep effect, right. We have more strongly negative and punitive attitudes towards people who we perceive to be lapsed members of our group mm. than the attitudes we have for the people who are outright uh, opponents of our group, right? Yeah, it's like you're a. La- I see you as a lapsed progressive. You're worse, <laughs> right? You're worse than Donald Trump. Yeah. Right? the lapsed progressive is the real center uh, uh, in the econ- in this political psychological economy, and so there are all kinds of incentives then for conformity, and mm. I think that especially for political coalitions that are aimed at um, uh, uh, that are aimed at progressive uh, 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 objectives. Um, You know, maybe there are other problems if your political coalition is more invested in, um, you know, what I'm going to say now in the political voice, not now talking about the Republican Party, I want to say, you know, if your political coalition is more philosophically conservative, invested in preserving what's best in a tradition, you know, philosophically conservative in the way that's represented in, you know, Burke and Oakshot and that those kinds of thinkers. And by the way, just in case people, you know, need to hear me say this, philosophically conservatism in politics is no joke. Conservatism in politics is a formidable, right, mm-hmm. tradition of yeah. social and political philosophy. Turns out that the Republican Party doesn't reflect Seems to me, very few the Republican Party doesn't reflect conservatism as a phil, as an intellectual philosophical tradition any longer. That's the problem. It seems, well, it's well, that's part of the problem, it seems to me. But anyway, let me just get back to the original point. If your political coalition is devoted to progressive aims politically, forces that constrain the range of what's perceived to be acceptable opinion within your coalition,
2: Mm.
1: forces that um, disincentivize heterodox thinking, right? Saying things that are unfamiliar, right? New thoughts, right? Rather than new ways of repeating the old ones. Those, I think, are just detrimental to any progressive political agenda. That is, part of what makes a progressive political agenda work, part of what lends to its success is its ability to recognize Mm -hmm. an expanding range of doctrinal variety among the in-group, right? That is that. There's a kind of like fast, cheap and out of control uh, to, to quote the uh, or to cite the uh, the Errol Morris documentary, which if anybody hasn't seen, you should go see. There's a kind of fast, cheap and out of control sort of uh, uh, there's a value of that kind of norm prevailing when the aims are progressive. Right. Hear new things, hear crazy things. Welcome everything. See what works. Dabble. Right. Yeah. Those are all, you know, I think essential to the success of uh, of progressive politics yeah. the belief polarization phenomenon counteracts that and tries to lends to a set of attitudes and dispositions that treat that proceed as if all of the important theoretical work has been done all the important philosophical mm. work has been done, and the point of the the point of the progressive coalition now is simply to enact what, already, what we already know needs to happen. Now that is, let me just put it this way that that is a a conservative,
2: <laughs>
1: philosophically speaking, a conservative attitude. We already know what needs to happen. Now we just got to figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah, I thought I thought I thought progressive politics was in part about challenging our conceptions, yeah, of what's possible, of what's feasible, of what's doable, of what's achievable, of you challenging our ideas about even fundamental aspects of our society, not because we're you know social engineers who already know that we've got to burn everything to the ground and build things anew, you know, Plato's Republic style or anything like that. But just because like, well, we see ourselves as situated within traditions of thought and habits of opinion that need to be shook up. And so the political psychological stuff strikes me as um, antithetical to the philosophical commitments of yeah. political progressivism in a way that when I see the kinds of trends among people I consider to be my allies, yeah. um, uh, it, it when I see it, it scares the, the life out of me. Yeah. Uh, because I want to say, well, look, you know, maybe with respect to a, the substantive question about whatever it may be, Right. Trans rights, feminism, you know, incarceration, policing, and how much funding the policing can get. You might be substantively correct about the question under uh, discussion, uh-huh. but to adopt the attitude that in virtue of the correctness of your answer to the issue, you now get to declare that to proceed as if there's still a question is an yeah. error. That strikes me as the death of progressive politics. Yeah. Um,
0: that, yeah. That needs to be your next book, by the way. Everything you <laughs> just said, next book. Like.
1: <laughs> now, yeah. By the way, let me just say last thing on this. You know, um, again, the 2019 book and the, the new book is the follow-up. So I've given lots of talks to all kinds of different audiences about this stuff, Uh you know, the need for non-political engagement, the need for a kind of self-critical detached reflection. You know, I've talked to a lot of different kinds of audiences about this. And I will say that one of the things I've realized in giving talks to all kinds of different audiences is how to put this. There's a certain range of um, almost instantaneous, critical response to either the idea that we need non-political modes of cooperation or the idea that we need detached political reflection, sometimes, right? Yeah. There's a mode of sort of knee-jerk response to this that almost always comes from people who perceive themselves, often are not in fact, but often perceive themselves to be to my left. Yeah. That. here's the argument for for example the need for non-political cooperation as the assertion of some idea they've already heard a dozen times yeah so wait a minute sometimes people write books because they want to say something that's different yeah from something you've already heard and you got to remember that and so the you know, when you say, well, you're talking about non-political endeavors, but don't you realize everything's political? Like, well, guess what? There's a whole section of the book about why, yeah, that that can't mean what you think it means. Yeah. Maybe it means something else, but it can't, maybe it's true under some other interpretation, but it can't mean the thing you think it means because politics itself has to be about something. Okay, yeah. right? So, you know, the, I, the the need, the tendency, the disposition to collapse every idea into one that's already been heard in i and either embraced or rejected Mm. that's the product of the polarization and other phenomena and i think that it's especially destructive especially destructive uh um uh when it's when it becomes the it's especially destructive for the progressive, uh, for the political progressive.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that's very well said. And now, now I get to reflect on this and think <laughs> and stuff like that. And and yeah, it's just a matter of recognizing it. But I I don't know. Here here's the one the one thing. Do you think if we fix the larger problem of polarization, it'll start to kind of loosen up within the group? Because it sounds like you were saying the. The cross party polarization has made us more solidified within the group. So do you think if we fix that or work on that, people will start to loosen up a little bit? I, um,
1: I think that um, we need to keep be mindful of the difference between a strategy designed to not exacerbate existing levels of polarization and strategies to avoid Polarization and strategies to reverse polarization. So there's three different things, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of democratic theory—that's you know, a lot of the deliberative democrat stuff that goes on. Uh, much of which I ally with, right? So you know, th- this is me being critical of my own friends here, right? In political yeah. philosophy. Um, or in democratic theory more broadly you know there's a lot of work empirically a lot of empirical work on improving the kinds of conversations that have to happen among democratic citizens who are you know um, of different you know who are of different partisan profiles and different political allegiances so on and so forth and um, all that's good and you know I endorse it You know, but it always strikes me as like it's never going to be the complete remedy because Mm. it's, you know, it's not always, sometimes it is, but it's not always a good solution to dealing with a bad thing that's happened Yeah, to just adopt the strategies that you would adopt if you're looking to prevent it from happening, right? (laughs) That is, Mm -hmm. once it's happened. The problem of dealing with it is different from the problem of preventing it in the first place. So it strikes me again. You know, I'm I'm all for like like do the citizen juries and the deliberative polling experiments like do all of the things that the empirically minded deliberative Democrats are doing with trying to enhance the um, the fruitfulness of cross-partisan political conversations, I'm all on board with it. My view is simply that it's, um, uh, it, it can't, it's not going to be the complete re- solution. Yeah. Part of what we need is to work on ourselves. We have to recognize that we, no matter what our political uh, uh, ideals and affiliations and associations and commitments are, mm-hmm. we're vulnerable to these cognitive forces. That doesn't mean that you know the polarization, the degree to which liberals and conservatives are polarized is identical, right? I don't even want to. I don't even know how we would go and measure something like that, yeah. right? But I just want to say, yeah, recognize that you're vulnerable to certain kinds of group group dynamical psychological forces that mess up your political thinking. <laughs> yeah, just recognize that. By the way, I, like I'm a philosophy professor. This is my job is just to teach this, right? I mean, no matter what the subject is like, hey, you know, there are things that seem obvious to you that you scratch them just a little bit and they're not so obvious anymore. You know, there are things that seem to you natural ways of going about thinking and looking at the world and finding things out about the world that aren't so reliable after all. You know, this is just sort of what, you know, philosophy is, is just sort of reminding us that the things that strike us as obvious and clear and natural and normal really got to appear to us that way by channels that aren't so reputable, right? Now, why not just think that about politics? Well, because the push and pull, the urgency of politics, the need to, to, you know, if you want an effective democratic voice, you got to join with others. You got to be a member of a group in order to be an effective political agent. All of those forces lead us into contexts where the social dynamics undercut yeah, our best modes of thinking, yeah. and I just think we've got to change that about ourselves. Which, if we do that, will change the incentives up the chain, right? Yeah. Like yeah. when you say, Well, wait a minute, you know, that I, you know, that I live a that I have these lifestyle preferences, these consumer preferences. This doesn't really give you such a clear indication of, you know, my preferences about all kinds of other things, right? Yeah. And you know, maybe um, certain kinds of political coalitions have to just sort of uh, reorient themselves or reacquaint themselves with the idea that um, it takes work. It's not just the natural product of the world. Yeah. Uh, not just the natural order of things, but it takes work to preserve doctrinal diversity um, doctrinal variation among your allies. That mm-hmm. takes work too. Yeah. You need to take steps to keep open the breath of what you what the people who are in your group accept you recognize as acceptable variation. That's not just, That doesn't happen automatically. In fact, the social pressures are against it.
3: Yeah, You've got to take (laughs)
1: steps to mitigate those pressures. I just want to emphasize last point, because here's one of the things that I will just, that I will be heard to have just said, which I did not say, right? I'm not saying go and learn to love your political enemies. (laughs) Take the guy with the MAGA hat out for a beer and try to see things from his perspective. I'm yeah. not, you can do that i'm not saying don't do it right you can right yeah what i am saying is that's not the, loving the other side is not the way out of this whatever its virtues may or may not be making friends with your enemies is not what what this is about what this is about is preserving your political friendships what it means and it takes right it takes steps to preserve civil and democratic relations with your opponents in order to preserve your political alliances. Because it's only by way of those civil engagements, democratic engagements with your critics, that you can counteract this political psychological mechanisms that lead you to shrink your understanding of what acceptable variation among your allies is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great, great way to end it because yeah absolutely it's it starts with us in the way we start perceiving this and acting and reacting and and all that stuff and 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 yeah robert so So yeah, I I love this conversation so much. And I can't wait for everybody to read this book. This is going to be coming out the week of launch, but can you let everybody know uh, when it's going to be out, where it's available, and most importantly, too, where can people follow you? Because you're a writing machine, you're out speaking and stuff. So where can people find and keep up to date with you and all that?
1: Okay, so the book, again, is titled Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe to the Other Side. Um, It ships from the warehouse today, September 9th, mm-hmm. which means that it is officially released two weeks from today, which is September 23rd. It's published by Oxford University Press mm-hmm. and is available wherever you might buy a book online, <laughs> um, uh, whether that be the, the big one that everybody's thinking of that you know, has A and Z in its name. Um, uh, or, uh, you know, bookshop.org or any of the other online book retailers that you might be familiar with. Um, it will be available in bookstores or at least orderable by bookstores. Um, mm-hmm. And so you can get the book uh, uh, through any of the ways in which you might go about buying, uh, you know, some nonfiction book. Um, but uh, you can follow me. I'm at Robert Talise on Twitter. And uh, um, there's also a Twitter account for the book. Mm. which is at sustaining d the letter d um and uh between my own twitter account and the twitter account for the book which is managed mainly by uh, a, a a student of uh, a research assistant of mine um yeah. that uh, anything that's important about the book and where I'm going to talk about it and whatever else might be happening and things that, you know, uh, um, um, op-eds and things that come out that are related to the book mm. uh, that will be broadcast on, uh, on, on either of those, or both probably both of those uh, Twitter accounts. So uh, people can go and, and, and follow me there and, and find out what's going on. And I'm always happy to receive email.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And that, uh, yeah the council, but your, your assistant, your research person, they're doing great. Cause I see them like tweeting and stuff like that. So, so you <laughs> give them, you give them my like, kudos, but yeah, Robert, thank you so much Thanks, for Chris. your time. And, and we might have to do this again, because now I got to go read your previous books. And so maybe we'll have to work backwards.
1: <laughs> Happy <laughs> awesome. to talk. Happy to talk.
0: Beautiful. All right. Thanks so much. All right everybody, that was my conversation with Robert Talese. and yeah, don't you don't you love like his passion and his energy? I don't know if it's, you know, <laughs> him coming from like New Jersey or what, but like I I love that conversation. Like after we finished that conversation when we recorded this a couple weeks ago, I was like I was pumped, you know, but I, I just love somebody who's passionate just, you know, about about these questions and these solutions and their work and all that stuff. So he's a great guy. And and yeah, I am, you know, uh, uh, about to go through his whole back catalog and read all his other stuff and everything like that. So make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Robert over on Twitter, and grab a copy of this book. Like I said, I didn't know what to expect. And I, I, I loved I love this book. So I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's linked down in the description below. But yeah, also down in the description below, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul, all right? And if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast and something you could do that really helps out is share these episodes with people you know, all right? Whether you text it to them or you share it on Facebook or Twitter or your favorite platforms like Reddit or whatever it is, share it out there. And hey, again, I think I mentioned this yesterday at the end of yesterday's episode, but we were like almost at 10,000 downloads and we only started this podcast in May. Well, I got great news. We have passed it, everybody. So yeah, thank you all for for listening. And I love growing this community. And yeah, I I started this thing. I was just like, I like to read. I like to talk with people about different, you know, subjects and all that. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I should put this out there. So I, I really appreciate all of you coming along for the journey and 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 you're enjoying, you know, these episodes with all these different authors and all that stuff, all right? But yeah, uh, something else you could do uh, that really helps the podcast aside from sharing it and following it is uh, if you're over on Apple or if you wanna just head over to Apple, uh, leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, all right? But some other ways you could support the podcast down in the description, there is a link to the therewiredsoul.com where I have self-published a variety of books about mental health, addiction, recovery. One of them is about my experience being canceled. Uh, You can also head down to the description. There is a link to become a patron and there's also uh, an affiliate link for BetterHelp online therapy. Mental health is a huge part of my life and BetterHelp is a service that I've personally used. I I really, really vouch for them because they helped me out a ton, especially uh, in 2019 when I was going through a bunch of stuff. So it's online, it's affordable, it's with a licensed therapist. So if you've been searching for some affordable therapy from the comfort of your own home, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy, all right? So again, another huge thanks to Robert for taking the time to come on and thank you to all of you for hanging out and listening. And yeah, I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I uh, Yeah, I, I have a bunch of episodes, so I think I'm gonna be posting through this weekend as well, but... You know, if you want to make sure you don't miss anything, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter, all right? So have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you next
2: time.